0: A Modest Silence by Jennifer Moss Ismany pulled her scarf more tightly around her neck The wet Vancouver wind had a way of finding its way right to her small bones no matter how cleverly she hid them away. Two sweaters, a windbreaker, and a woolly scarf wrapped twice around and tucked down the front of her jacket did nothing much against the seeping cold. The truth was, she had never quite gotten used to the chill that had set in after her sister's cremation. It was unnatural. All that fire surrounding the coffin, but no discernible heat? No smoke either, or rather, the smoke that there was that there must have been, simply whisked away like dirty smudges off a wall, carried upward and out by the tall chimney of the crematorium while she and the other contrite survivors of Creon's purge sat, safe and solemn, on the hard benches of contemplation. It was the kind of cold that even a hot bath couldn't fix. She shivered, looking up and down the street. Soggy winter gardens and sad-looking wooden houses clustered mutely alongside one another, a far cry from the warm sun and cool marble courtyards she had grown up with. It was early. The neighbourhood was barely stirring. She'd seen a few hurried commuters and dog walkers since she got off the bus, but no one made eye contact. It wasn't that kind of city. The morning sky was grey, as it had been for Antigone's burning. It annoyed her that everything had to be compared to that awful day. How she was feeling, whether optimistic or dog-tired, was now always gauged in relation to that wretched compass point, her new ground zero. The feeling was hard to define. It chafed. A flock of crows passed overhead, cawing loudly on their morning trajectory, indifferent as sharks to the feelings of others. She recalled reading that when a crow dies, the others in the murder will gather round, cawing and shrieking in a way that resembles grief to the untrained ear, but is really a form of collective threat assessment, an alarm of sorts. The cawing and shrieking is not mourning, but warning. As for what the crows might be warning about now, it was hard to say. There was no discernible threat, the former king Creon sat safely in custody, her brothers long gone. The social media storm surrounding these events had died down somewhat, though she knew the lull wouldn't last. Even Antigone was finally gone, though it had taken three whole deaths to lay her to rest. First, entombed in a mountain by Creon, then hung by her own hand, and then set on fire in a foreign land by Ismene and those who were left to mourn. Three deaths, and yet she still haunted every waking thought. Ismene felt a flash of annoyance. Crows were horrible, garbage eating birds. Everyone knew that. She continued along the slick sidewalk, dodging puddles, until she came to the address she'd been looking for, the one she'd found in the classified section of the local paper. A small sign hung on an iron rail at the top of a narrow cement staircase leading down to a basement entryway. It read, Grief Support Group. Newcomers Welcome. Uncertain, Ismene hovered at the top of the stairs. Though she'd never been here before, newcomer hardly seemed the right word to describe her. True, she was new to this place, but not new to grief. Her upbringing was the stuff of Greek tragedy. Besides, what business did she have trying to get over Antigone's death anyway? Antigone was dead. She was alive. Shouldn't that be enough? and yet here she was. She'd set her alarm, caught the bus across town, and come here on the advice of her doctor, who thought she looked too thin, to examine her lingering feelings, as if looking at what had happened yet again would somehow restore the taste of food in her mouth or make her remember what it felt like to be carefree. Ismany hesitated, considered turning around. She could spend the day at the library instead. That usually soothed her. Then she sighed, took one of her small, clutching breaths, and started down the stairs. Before she reached the bottom step, the door flew open. Oh, it's you. Expecting someone else, my dear? The sign just said grief support. I didn't see a name. Well, you can never be too careful. But come in, come in. Tiresias in the wizened flesh. That must have been what the crows were on about. The old man had always had a powerful connection with scavengers. He looked none too worse for wear, either, considering his harrowing escape from Creon's death squad. She'd heard he'd had to crawl his way out of the royal city by way of a drainage ditch. Blind, ancient, but also bright and intact, he had somehow ended up on top again. He reminded her of a vintage TV ad for batteries she'd seen recently on that modern oracle YouTube, the one with the stuffed fluffy bunny who just keeps on banging these brass instruments together. It was something about his pink, slightly flushed old man skin and the way Tiresias just kept going and going and going. He didn't seem to take each new affront personally. Tiresias was forever laying hands on people. He was a hugger. Ismaini was not. And although she'd known him her whole life, he made her uncomfortable with his constant reading of bones and scribbling of cryptic notes. Still, people said his roomy eyes could see things that others couldn't. For that reason alone, she supposed he might make a halfway decent grief counselor. You'll be wanting some tea. At least he could see that she was practically frozen. That was a start. The others are already here, as squinted in the dimly lit basement. A circle of chairs, a record player etching out some ethereal medieval music, a thin carpet stretched over the cement floor. Tiresias hustled over to the corner near the electric kettle and began fussing with her tea. She could make out two other people sitting in the circle, one she vaguely recognized from her days at the palace, a low-level civil servant, she thought, from the way he dropped his gaze deferentially in her formerly royal presence. Those days were gone now, but some people still obeyed protocol. The other person was a stranger to her, a powerful-looking woman with a beak-like nose and a mass of red hair piled on top of her head in such a way that it threatened to come tumbling down at any minute. Ismene drew back instinctively, By her own assessment, she was not a strong woman, built thin and fine, mostly vegetarian. She felt an instant mistrust of women like this one, women who looked as though they could eat a small army for breakfast. She sat down, primly, opposite the woman, and stared hard at a stain on the carpet. "'That stain looks exactly like a dick,' said the red-haired woman, raising one of her wild eyebrows and leaning back precariously on the hind legs of her chair." Ismene ignored this comment. It was true, of course, but there was no need to be rude. Tiresias shuffled over with a full mug of tea, slopping it on the floor as he went. "'Got the shakes?' asked the civil servant, finally looking up. "'Hands aren't so steady, I'm afraid.' Ismene took the hot liquid gratefully from Tiresias, feeling its warmth beginning to thaw her fingers. "'Least of your problems, Grandpa,' said the redhead." Tiresias smiled, unbothered. He took the needle off the record player, crossed the room and sat down, adjusted his belt. Ismene watched the others through the steam rising from her cup. There was an awkward silence as the four of them regarded one another while pretending not to. Shall we get started? The others nodded. Ismene blew on her tea, wishing... She'd just stayed under the quilt like a normal person on a Sunday morning, or perhaps gone to Michael's Craft for the knitting workshop she'd seen in their weekend flyer. The idea of sharing her pain with this room full of misfits was growing less and less appealing. Then again, she knew she needed to shed her guilt about Antigone. Just drop it like an old undergarment. Such a thing was probably impossible, but she had to try. Jonas, why don't you begin? Last week you were telling us about your job guarding the dead. Tell us more. At these words, Ismene realized with a shock where she knew the other man from. She had last seen him guarding the body of her fallen brother, Polynices. He'd kept watch over him at Creon's insistence, preventing her and Antigone from saying their goodbyes in the proper way. Back then he'd seemed like an implacable, unscalable wall. The picture came swimming towards her across dreams and nightmares. Antigone beating her bald fists against this man's chest, Antigone begging to be allowed to see their brother, who lay just a few feet away, his body torn and broken from the war. Despite her sister's wailing, and she could be very persuasive, this man, this guard, had just continued to stand there, his hand on his weapon his eyes like a black hole, demonstrating a complete lack of emotion. The picture vanished. Ismene stared at the man. Today he seemed quite different. He was out of uniform, dressed in a rumpled plaid shirt and cargo pants, wool socks, filthy work boots too, she noticed. He must have taken up a new profession. His eyes looked red as though he might have been crying. Ismene recognized guilt when she saw it. No wonder he could barely look at her. The man cleared his throat. I wanted the job. Competed for it. That's the part that kills me. They made it seem like a plum gig. Good benefits, decent hours, even during wartime. And I got to stay out of the fighting. Why was that important to you? Asked Tiresias. I'm a middle child. Peacemaker. I really didn't want any trouble. Ismene, whose heart was beating like the wings of a rufous hummingbird by now, felt an intense pang of recognition. She should hate this man. She did hate him, with all of her being. Yet there was something about him that she understood instinctively. She, too, avoided trouble at all costs. Her mind travelled back to the confrontation over her brother's body. It had taken place in another basement, a long hallway leading to Creon's Palace dungeon. Where had she been then? While Antigone did all the talking, she'd simply stood back in the shadows, waiting, imploring silently, but not voicing her thoughts. She hadn't seen much point. A modest silence is a woman's crown, as their nanny used to say, quoting someone famous. Plus, it had been clear from the man's body language that he wasn't going to back down, and to be fair, it would have been his head if he had. Creon was not a man to cross especially back then, when he was riding high from his bloody victory on the battlefield. Men under those conditions should be given a wide berth. Ismene had understood that with perfect clarity. She had always been able to foresee consequences better than Antigone. Ironic, considering she was the younger sister. But follow someone into enough thistle patches, enough quicksand-afflicted swamps, enough mist curfews, and you learn quickly not to trust their judgment. That was life with Antigone, an older sister who always thought she knew best, but who so rarely did. You mean to say you wanted a paycheck and you didn't care who you had to fuck over to get it? The vile, red-haired woman stirred herself almost idly, scratching her generous cleavage as she shifted in her chair, staring straight at the man the whole time. Now, Medea, said Tiresias, We are not here to judge. We're here to listen to each other's stories. I'm sure Jonas feels a lot of regret. Tiresias sounded composed, but Ismene felt an element of senility in his words. It was the tendency of very old people to want peace over all else. She sympathized, but it also seemed to her that the woman had a good point. If it weren't for this man... Jonas's stoic refusal to show basic human pity, her sister might still be alive. Antigone might never have taken it into her head to sneak out at night against Creon's strict decree and attempt to bury Polynices in secret- A mission that had failed miserably. I'm sorry, but isn't he still collecting a palace pension? So how much regret is he really feeling? Medea tossed her hair defiant. Jonas looked down at his boots. Tiresias clicked his tongue then turned his attention to Ismene as if realizing for the first time that it might be difficult for her to be in the same room as the man who had guarded her brother's corpse. My dear, do you have a recollection you'd like to share? Ismene scanned the room looking for some cue of what to say. Her whole life was a recollection. Nothing about it seemed anything to do with the present. Just that... Ismene took a deep breath. I remember you, Jonas the guard. I remember what you did. I also remember what you didn't do for my sister. The words barely out of her mouth, Ismene felt instantly terrible. Jonas seemed crushed. He could barely look in her direction. He started to speak, sat up, opened his mouth like a Chinatown carp, then closed it again, slumping back down. "'That's right, loser. Suck on that!' Medea glared at Jonas and gave his mania a wink. Jonas stared at her for a moment, pain and disbelief registering on his face, then anger. Then the stone coldness of his former job seemed to rise up in him, and he said evenly, "'I'm not listening to a child murderer.' Nobody moved. "'Child murderer?' The words were simple enough, but they sat inside the silence in that cold basement circle of chairs like a low-lying, toxic fog, close and overpowering. Child murderer. If the words had a colour, as Manny thought, they would be green and horrible. So that was who this loud-mouthed woman was. She couldn't believe she was in the same room with that Medea, the jilted wife whose righteous anger at her husband's betrayal had led her to kill her own children out of spite. Medea was legendary and not in a good way. When it had happened, her name had been splashed all over the news. Jason, the husband, was interviewed endlessly and held up as the long-suffering hero. He'd recovered quite ably, considering, but Medea, banished from her city in disgrace, left behind a trail of bloodshed so deep so troubling that mothers everywhere hugged their children a little tighter when they heard the gory tale, the Medea affair. There had been books written on it. Ismene and Antigone had had a big fight over it, in fact. Antigone had admired Medea, spoken in hushed tones of her courage and principles. Ismene had pronounced her a monster, loathing the thought that someone could achieve such an incredible level of selfishness. Though she was no stranger to violence, Ismene abhorred it. Antigone, on the other hand, used to find it exciting. Their mother used to say that on sunny days, Antigone would walk miles to find the rain, ironic since, as their mother's tragically short life had proven, usually the rain will find you all on its own. But Antigone was drawn to violence. She sought it out, like an insect drawn inexorably to fire. Insects were, in fact, the first victims of Antigone's fascination with violence. She would make Ismene watch as she pulled off their limbs one by one. Cicadas, beetles, her favorite victims were dragonflies, with their shimmering wings and beautiful iridescent bodies. Stop! Ismene would sob, hating every second of these torture sessions. Stop it! "'But Antigone, often urged on by their brothers, "'would never stop until all the legs and wings were gone "'and the insect was left writhing aimlessly on the ground. "'Then she and the boys would grow bored "'and scamper off somewhere to swim or play darts, "'leaving Izmene to watch the poor creatures die. "'Sometimes she just watched as their life slowly left them. "'Sometimes she stepped on them to end their pain. "'To this day she wasn't sure which was worse.' Medea coughed. Well, there it is. Now you know. My sister was a fan of yours, said Ismene. Oh, yeah? Yes, said Ismene, surprised at her own courage. She tended to like violent things. Many women do, said Medea. Tiresias piped up. Tell us more about her. How to Encapsulate Antigone She had been so many different things—inspiration, aggressor, fool, heroine, to name just a few. Men had thought her fascinating and different, but girls and women mistrusted her, sometimes for good reason. Insects were her first violence, but certainly not her last. She was fond of all the trappings of violence that were normally the purview of men— she sat and listened, enraptured to their father before his demise, relating news of distant wars, quests, and battles. Tell the part again where he cuts off the monster's head, she would cry gleefully, while his manie paced in the garden, trying not to hear. Antigone snuck out to the market, where she learned to fight with her fists. And sometimes she would knock a jug of milk over in the kitchen on purpose, and laugh while their poor nanny had to bend over and clean it up. She kept that nanny very busy. Antigone wasn't a kind girl, but she was somehow lit from the inside. Ismene sighed. Finally, she said, She tied me to a tree once, left me there. Why do you think she did such a thing? The old man pressed. She was furious that people called me beautiful. They only ever called her spirited. And so you are. And so she was. How did that make you feel? A complicated question, but the old man waited patiently for an answer. At the time, Ismene had felt shame. She'd been left tied up so long by her older sister that she had wet herself. When their nanny finally came in and cut her down, Ismene had already spent all her tears. She didn't speak to Antigone or anyone else for days. Antigone had regretted her actions and apologized, but it had never been the same between them after that. She remembered Antigone trying to make it up to her by offering to let her punch her in the chest. Come on, do it. You know it will hurt more on the tits. You know you want to. Ismene didn't want to. She wanted a sister who did not solve every problem with action, who didn't use words like tits just to shock her. Well, how do you think it made her feel? "'Someone ties you to a tree, you feel rotten,' blurted Jonas, "'suddenly back to his everyday personality. "'Ismene looked up at him, oddly grateful. "'Yes, rotten, the very word. "'I see,' said Tiresias. "'Anything further to add? "'No, just... rotten.' "'Ismene glanced at the clock on the wall. "'Time seemed to have taken on a different quality in this basement.' She wasn't exactly sure how long she'd been down here. Two robins pecked for worms and fluttered about under the dead bushes outside the ground-level window. It was early for robins. A streak of weak sunlight came through the dirty windowpane. And there was a strange smell in the air, getting slowly worse. It was like garbage carried on a hot wind. Why did you have to say that word? snarled Medea, her voice low and frightening. She sniffed the air like a dog. That was it, Ismaini realized. That was the smell. Something rotten. A sickly rot. Meaty. Suddenly, Medea let out a deep, almost sexual moan. she put her head in her hands and pulled at her hair a handful came right out and she held it loosely between her fingers staring at the tangled red mass as though puzzled by where it had come from her eyes rolled back in her head and her lips twisted into a grimace i smell them can you smell them jonas and his glanced at each other confused only Tiresias nodded sagely as though everything were completely normal. My babies! I smell them! Whatever it was that Medea was experiencing, it was clearly not good. The shudderings and splutterings of a guilty conscience, as many supposed. She almost felt sorry for her, but not quite. After all, the woman had killed her children in cold blood. She deserved to be in torment. All anyone could do was watch as Medea, writhing in her chair in intense pain, fell apart. Sobbing, she slid from her seat onto the hard floor and lay prostrate, arms outstretched, pleading, Please, no! Please, no! Don't let me see them! I don't want to see! Oh, their little bodies! Blood! Why must they look at me that way? Stop! I've seen enough! I've seen enough! I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Medea lay crumpled on the floor. She looked reduced to almost nothing, as Mani thought, a fraction of her former proud self. It seemed a shame. And then, just as suddenly as it had begun, it was all over. The rotten smell dissipated, leaving the room in the same mysterious way it had come. The four of them sat breathless. There was the kind of pause where anything could happen. Ismene and Jonas were watching Medea as she slowly came out of her tormented state, disoriented. But Tiresias was staring hard at Ismene, a strange look dawning on his face, a kind of sly knowing. Medea sat up, rubbing her eyes. She looked at Ismene. "'You!' Me? What did I do? You made that happen. You you and the old man, you're in it together. Ismene had an odd feeling that Medea, crazy as she clearly was, might not be altogether wrong. After all, she had said rotten, and then just like that, rot had seemed to seep out of the walls. But it made no sense. How could she have made that happen? Tiresias hopped up and strode over to the corner. "'More tea, anyone?' "'He began rummaging around in the cupboard. "'Ismene watched him set the kettle to boil. "'He seemed to be looking for something in particular. "'I'll have some,' she said. "'Tea always helped. Everyone knew that. "'Medea raised her hand politely like a chastened child. "'She looked drawn and exhausted. "'Yes, please.' "'Hashtag me too,' said Jonas. "'You're not funny,' said Medea.' her reflex annoyance at jonas returning some of the color to her cheeks ismene inwardly rolled her eyes men she mused that antigone had she lived would have hated to be in the same room with this oafish man in fact she would likely have been at the forefront of the hashtag me too movement "'the riptide of raw feminist anger "'that was engulfing the airwaves and coffee-shops of her adopted city. "'It seemed there was not a woman from here to eternity "'who had not been raped, molested, or sexually harassed. ismayne was unsurprised by the numbers. "'It was the level of shock and outrage in the movement that took her aback. "'Surely by now people should be used to the fact that men strayed, "'men hurt, men had sex with whatever they pleased.' Not that this was a good thing, just that it was a thing, a thing that happened. It needed to be anticipated in order to be avoided. Both she and Antigone had been molested early and often by their brothers, who seemed to have nothing better to do. At first Ismene had liked the attention. It was the one time her brother Polynices had been gentle with her. When she was old enough to understand that it was wrong, she simply filed it away under lessons learned and resolved to avoid being alone with her brothers whenever possible and never to speak of it again. Antigone, on the other hand, almost dared their brothers to act upon her, and when they did, she wore the scars of it like a defiant badge of honour. She dressed provocatively around the boys, paraded past them in clothes wet from swimming, taunted them, But when they came for her, she fought them like a tigress, which only made them more determined to have her. One day, when they had finally managed to pin Antigone down, Polynices had hoisted up her dress and put his hands under there. To Ismene standing at a distance, it had all seemed entirely predictable, like a dark extension of their childhood games. Antigone screamed and screamed for Ismene to help her, but all Ismene could do was watch. If She had done anything, anything at all, they would have hurt her too. She was certain of this; she could see it clearly, so instead she watched, thinking all the time of a wingless dragonfly. Try this, said Tiresias, handing her a fresh cup of tea. It smelled odd, Dittany and mugwort, he said, as though that would explain anything a good for lucid dreaming. Haven't we had just about enough of that? asked Medea nervously. Never, smiled Tiresias, looking for all the world like an old peddler with a cart full of strong Retzina. Ismene was beginning to understand that this was not a normal grief support group. For one thing, nobody was giving anybody any support. Only tea, and strange tea at that. And Tiresias was no normal counsellor. The old man had a way of looking through her that she found very disconcerting. "'Tell me, my dear, did you resent your sister for dying?' How is she supposed to answer that question, for instance? If she said yes, she would be telling only part of the truth. Same if she said no. Antigone had been the great building in whose shade she sheltered, on and off for her whole life, an unstable building, one with a crumbling foundation, but one that nevertheless reached for the sky every day of its existence. I. I can't say. Sometimes we hate those we love most, don't we? Tiresias's words made Ismene think about her boy cousin Haman, her best friend. They had grown up together, meeting in the library or under the shade of the plane trees while the others played ball or teased each other down by the river. Haman was a deep thinker, rather like his dad, her uncle Creon, had professed to be before he succeeded her father Oedipus as king and revealed himself to be a tyrant. But unlike Creon, Haman had no lust for power. He was a true philosopher. He and Ismene talked of one day paddling away on a small papyrus boat, one like the river fishermen used to check their traps. Then their plan went, they would set up a bookshop, Scrolls and speeches and such, somewhere down river, away from the capital. He had seemed serious. He had never touched her, but it was understood by everyone that he was hers and she was his, and that one day they would be together as man and wife. But before that day arrived, Antigone had thrown a ball, overhand, towards the blanket where Ismene and Haman were drowsing. The ball had hit Haman square in the lap. He sat up in shock and pain to see Antigone standing over him, grinning. The sun backlit her white dress, and you could see the entire shape of her long legs because she never wore undergarments. She said she found them too confining, but she knew she must have known how Haman would look at her. She twisted her hair and asked him if he wanted to play, and suddenly Haman, her Haman, was up and running fast as wind. He never looked back. The love affair of Antigone and Haman was messy and notorious. They would arrange to meet after dark in low places. In daylight they were seen at market together, her feeding him dates as bold as anything. People talked, of course. Ismene told herself she was better out of it. She'd had a narrow miss, according to her nanny, who was usually right about everything. Still, she hoped that one day Haman would arrive back at the spot where he had taken leave of his senses, the spot beside her on their shady blanket. But he never did. And when Antigone kicked up her great fuss, when she insisted on burying Polynices and Creon was forced to uphold his decree, who should try to come to her rescue but Haman? Poor sweet Haman! He thought he could argue with his father, use rhetorical logic tactics, and convince him in a gentlemanlike debate not to have Antigone put to death. Creon was, of course, totally unmoved. Ismene wasn't the least bit surprised. She never thought there was any hope he'd back down. It wasn't in Creon's nature, first of all. He was a prideful man, and the world was watching to see just what kind of king he was going to be. He was new at the job, New to kingship, he did not yet know that it's enough to hold power over others. One doesn't need to wield it. So Creon had condemned Antigone to death. He'd announced his intention to have her walled up in a cave outside the city. Ismene had been so distraught at this news that on the spur of the moment, she'd found herself volunteering to go along and die with her sister. After all, she had wanted to bury Polynices. For despite his many faults, he had been her brother too. Antigone had merely done in actuality what she herself had done in fantasy. Creon, for his part, had seemed appalled at the whole situation. When he wrote his first kingly decree that enemies of the state should not be buried on pain of death, he likely never imagined that he would end up having to apply that phrase pain of death to one or both of his nieces. But in the end, as always, it was Antigone who decided what would happen. Antigone who chose the path that would drive Creon mad, raise the populace against him, destroy Haman's happiness, and cause Ismene to live forever in exile and shame. Antigone chose the heroine's high-wire walk of death. She preferred the spotlight to remain on her and her alone. Ladies and gentlemen, we give you Antigone. Faster than a speeding bullet, "'Stronger than a locomotive, deeper than the river Styx.' "'Antigone had said it went against her older sister programming "'to allow Ismene to die because of something she herself had done. "'And so Antigone was born away, "'shining with a kind of holy white light, "'surrounded, as usual, by men. "'Jonas had been there, Ismene suddenly recalled. "'He had held the door open for this procession of death. "'She remembered the look on his face seemed haunted.' even then. Haman had followed at a distance. That was the last time she saw him. He'd walked right past her, and out the door his head bowed. When word came back to the castle several days later that Haman was missing, that he could not be found in his quarters or anywhere in the city, Ismane knew she had lost him too. Creon himself could not believe it. Men never can. Sick at the thought of what he might have caused, he felt the need to rush off to the cave, pull aside the stones himself in a fit of pique, only to discover Antigone and Haman, both there, both already dead. Ismene looked around. She realized she'd been silent for several minutes. Beads of sweat had appeared on her forehead and her teeth were beginning to chatter. A metallic taste filled her mouth. The others were staring at her expectantly. I I loved her because she was my sister, said Ismene slowly. Although she, she was a terrible person. She was never very kind to me. But she turned me back towards life when I would have gone to death. There, she had said it, all of it. She felt a bit light headed. Truth, when it gushes out like that, can cause a rush of blood to the extremities. Did you see any birds on your way over here this morning? asked Tiresias, changing the subject abruptly. Birds? The old man was positively bewildering. Here we go again with the birds, said Jonas. He's obsessed with them, saves the bones every time he goes to KFC. It made sense, of course. Back home, Tiresias had been known for his soothsaying abilities. He could read animal scat and bird bones like the back of his hand, people said. Kentucky Fried Chicken Bones would do as well as any in a prayer bowl, as Maney supposed. As a matter of fact, I did see some crows right before I got here. Ah, oh, interesting. Crows often know things in advance. And just round when that smell came... I saw two robins outside the window, right there. Tiresias seemed taken aback by this. It's early for robins, he muttered. What could it mean? Medea moaned again, softly this time. (sighs) I called my babies my robins. That is who you saw. But that's wonderful, said Tiresias. Wonderful! Ismene was not sure how wonderful it was, but the robins had seemed harmless enough. "'You've come a long way, Medea. Today, your children heard your apology.' Medea closed her eyes and heaved a deep and ragged sigh. "'Please let that be true.' Jonas looked solemnly at the spot on the carpet blinking rapidly to control his tears. Anyone would have agreed. It was quite a moment. And you, Ismene. I think you may have the gift. The gift? Ismene wasn't sure if this was good news or not, but she was sure that Tiresias meant it kindly. The sight, such as I have. That is what let you see far enough down the road to make the right decisions. "'To survive. That is what brought you here. "'I'll have to do some tests, of course, to be sure, consult the bones,' he trailed off, muttering. "'Well, we're glad you came, anyway,' said Jonas. "'Yes,' said Medea, her eyes full. "'We are.' Ismene smiled at them shyly. "'It was nice to be complimented again. "'In fact, it felt quite supportive.' Tiresias let out a soft belch, and finally there was quiet in the room. Muffled sounds filtered in from outside, traffic whooshing along wet streets, voices calling out to one another. Outside, events pressed on as they always do, but inside this room, it seemed to Ismene that a kind of peace descended, a comfortable silence between these long-lost survivors, She took a sip of her tea.